Well, good morning again. My name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor here. And this is a momentous occasion. This is actually the first time I have seen most of you without a mask on in worship. So I know, right? It's kind of weird coming to a new place in the midst of a pandemic when everybody covers their face. So yeah, made it. There's been lots of, oh, hey, you. So, <laughs> so I'm just going to do a blanket rule here at Sycamore for the next month. Let's reintroduce ourselves to everybody. So when you walk up to somebody, go ahead and remind them of your name because they probably have forgotten because they just have your eyes, all right? And I know it would help me and my family out a lot to actually finally see your faces now if we could reintroduce ourselves to everybody. So my name is Sean, and I'm your friend. And I, be, and I hope you want to be my friend as well. So this morning we're in Ruth. We're working our way through what we're calling strong Old Testament women. We've been in Esther, and now we're finishing up uh, in the next two weeks the book of Ruth. For those of you interested, we're going to start in the book of James in June. So we're going to have some good times in God's Word over the summer. So Ruth is a historical book. Let me remind you of that. So this is stuff that actually happened, and it happened to God's people in, in the nation of Israel a long time ago. One of the things that we have to remember is that there's words like nation and country and stuff, and we, we, we don't want to get distracted by taking those words and putting them to our words and saying this is what God says to our country we live in. This is God's special set-apart people who live under covenant rules and a special relationship with him. So the best way to understand a book like Ruth is that he's kind of talking to the church. He's critiquing people who are already in relationship and, and showing us how to have a more robust, more profound faith in real life, in real difficulties. So that's what Ruth is about. Now, if you remember in chapter one, Naomi kind of got off track with her and her family. They decided that the difficulties of God's land weren't worth staying. Kind of the metaphor we've been using is the check engine light came on. God said, if I send a famine, it means something's wrong. You need to look under the hood and see what's happening here. And they said, no, we're not gonna do that. We're just gonna get a new car because the check engine light came on. So they left and they went to Moab. Not supposed to go to Moab. And in Moab, the head of the family dies, the two sons die. And so Naomi is left a widow with two daughters-in-law who are also widows in a time when there was no social support system. It was very patriarchal. What are they gonna do? They're looking at a life of destitution. And so Ruth, that difficulty leads her to repentance. And she comes back with, Naomi repents and she comes back with Ruth to Bethlehem, her homeland. And when she gets there, Bethlehem's a little like, who is this? And we finally get them in Bethlehem and now we're working on getting them accepted by all the people. So with that in mind, would you please pray with me before we go to God's word together? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your grace. Thank you, Father God, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us in, in word, in speech, that we might know you. We pray, Lord, that you would even now open this text up to us. Give us truth, Lord, for our growth and for our, our transformation. Now, because we need it so desperately. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so before we jump into this chapter, we'll kind of get your mind in the right set of this here in Ruth 3. So everybody kind of has a joke about their mother-in-law, right? Some of you might have a, a relationship with your mother-in-law where the joke and stereotype is fulfilled. Some of you don't, but it's kind of a cruel stereotype. It's not always accurate. Supposedly they're pushy and never satisfied. They're always kind of in your business and it's never a good thing. And so in today's passage, what happens is that modern stereotype is often put right back onto this ancient text. And supposedly we see that Naomi is a never satisfied, intervening, busybody mother-in-law. She's not content to wait on God and so she forces a situation. 
I mean, after all, as we start this chapter out, it's been two months since Ruth and Boaz spoke. Naomi's hope for the future was rekindled by this perhaps relationship between Boaz and Ruth and nothing happened. And so she's getting anxious and so she's on it. She supposedly comes up with a manipulative plan to get this thing happening. Or maybe it's on the other side. Maybe it's Ruth, right? Maybe we're going to see, you know, Ruth is kind of returns to her Moabite past and kind of morality issues aren't quite the same as it is in Israel. So she's going to kind of maybe make something happen because we're about to read a really uncomfortable situation. In fact, one hipster pastor calls Ruth 3 a uh, Ruth Gone Wild video. So I don't know if it's quite that bad. We'll have to see. But instead of reading our context back onto them, let's let the context of Ruth tell us what's going on. So again, they left, they came back, and now at the beginning of chapter three, both Naomi and Ruth are in with God's people. They're in with Bethlehem. And now that they're secure in God's grace, they're free to think of others and try to help others. And we're gonna see in this story that they each want to help each other secure blessing. And it reminds us, those of us who've confessed faith in Christ, that getting the gospel, being anchored in God's love, empowers us to help others and empowers us to seek their good, to pursue deeper relationships with them. And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this, that God often blesses his people through his people. And this is a long passage today, so we're going to read it in sections. You can go ahead and stay seated. The first section we're going to look at is verses 1 through 6 of Ruth chapter 3. This is God's word. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. And she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And this is God's word. Okay, so it starts out, and... Naomi wants Ruth blessed through marriage. Now remember in chapter one, we saw that she asked for, she wanted uh, Ruth and Orpah, her sister, to get rest in husbands. Here, it's a little bit different. Back then, she basically said, Ruth, you need to build your life on a husband because nothing else works. Go back home to Moab and find a husband and live well and prosper. The word for rest used here is just slightly different. That word before was kind of like a subjective internal thing. This word is used in much more objective senses. What that means is like it's often used for the idea of home. So what she's saying is, Ruth, I want you to get a home. So she's not saying, I want you to have internal fulfillment. No, I want you to just have a home. I want you to have a place. I want you to have somewhere in a husband. I want to find you blessing is what she says. See, Naomi has witnessed this last two months of provision. This amazing provision that God has, prov- has given them has just overwhelmed Naomi's bitterness and she sees the Lord is at work. She believes in God's goodness. She's no longer empty, so she wants to bless Ruth. And so securing God's grace, we no longer think of only ourselves. And, and Naomi's a great example of this. This big change from calling herself empty and bitter, now she recognizes, no, God has been working everywhere. You see, Naomi, like all of us, is on a journey of repentance. That's what the Christian life is. 
We never stop repenting in this life. Y'all, y'all know that, right? It's a journey of repentance. We're constantly recognizing, we're like, oops, I did it again. I gotta do something else now, right? We, have, we recognize, Lord, I've messed up. I wanna turn differently. Well, actually, I actually don't want to, but I know I should. Will you help me with my want tos? That's repentance. See, being more like Jesus is a journey, right? Because we keep finding more and more of ourselves that, that's not like Jesus. And so we, we take those to the Lord and say, would you help me to be like Jesus here? See, repentance takes our eyes off our problems and helps us look to others. <clears throat> it causes us to notice the plight of others. Real repentance drives us to serve others because we see how much God has served us. So Naomi has repented. And Naomi has a plan, right? It's harvest season, it's ending. All the activity is moving from the fields to now the various threshing floors. So threshing, okay, what is that? So at various hilltops in Israel or in the ancient Near East or even in the Near East today where they kind of are more, more rural, you know, the wind comes through on these, on these hilltops. And so if you remember, they've been gathering all these sheaves and bundling up. They have all these bundles. They take them up to the hilltops. They untie them. They spread them out. And they have an animal, an oxen or two, walk over them back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And someone comes with a pitchfork, kind of throws it up in the air. And what happens is the wind blows the chaff away and the heavy grain falls back down to the earth and they pile it up. And so they have a year's harvest by the, at the end of threshing and that's their yearly income. It's this big, huge festival. Like, look at the money and the food we have now. So the landowners at this point lived at the threshing floor until it was done. And that gives Naomi her idea. And there's some weird stuff here in there. Let's, let, let's not try to sanitize this too much. There's some weird stuff in verse three through five. I mean, it seems a little... um. Not the best advice, right? Get all cleaned up, secretly find out where he's sleeping, partially undress him, and see what happens. Like, um, Naomi, we, we think you're gonna have to step away from women's ministry leadership for a little while. We have some questions about some of your practical ideas. We know your heart's in the right place, but maybe you've been watching too many soap operas while Ruth's been gleaning, or, or maybe you should kind of put that copy of Fifty Shades in the garbage where it belongs, because this, this, this isn't working, right? See, it's often misunderstood because of cultural differences. So what I want to do is I want everybody, we're going to look together at the kids' version of verse 3 and 4. I tried to capture these cultural differences when I did this for the kids. So let's look together, kids' verse 3 and 4. It's on page 11. It's also on a slide. Here's what she says. It's time to end your official sadness over the death of your husband so that all Bethlehem, especially Boaz, will know you are ready to marry again. Go see him tonight but don't let him see you until he's done feasting. When he lies down next to his grain, go and uncover his feet and lie down there. When he wakes up because his feet are cold, he'll see you there. Then he'll tell you what to do. Okay, so you see, it's not nearly as creepy. It's still like, I'm not gonna give my daughters this advice, okay, but it's still not nearly as creepy right here, right? So let's unpack it and it gets even better, okay? So first things first. White collar workers, like pastors, we shower before work. Blue-collar workers like my dad, they shower after work. Gleaners, harvesters are blue-collar. Naomi, I mean, excuse me, Ruth stinks. She's been in the field all day. She needs to clean up. You know, like those popular, terrible evangelical books. Girl, wash your face. She needs to go wash her face. Second, in the Near East, ancient and today, 
people are much more outward with their emotions. They, you know, they, don't, they didn't have to deal with Queen Victoria in their past, so they don't have to hold everything in like we do. Well, they get to do it outward. So when you were upset, like if your husband died and you were a widow, you dressed like it so everybody could say, oh, she's in mourning. And part of it was you were a little loose with certain habits of personal hygiene. We don't know what those were. We just know that they were. There's examples of this in the Old Testament. If you want to look up a guy named Mephibosheth in the Old Testament, there's actually a story about his personal hygiene lacking because he was in mourning. It's a very common practice. So what she's basically saying is, okay, the time for mourning is over. Wash yourself, get back to normal hygiene, quit wearing mourning clothes, put regular clothes on, show everybody that you are now ready to be married again signal to them that it's okay. A good example of this would be a, a modern day widow or widower who chooses to wear their wedding band until they're just, I'm just not ready. And then after a time, sometimes it's a couple months, sometimes it's a couple years, there is no set time and we're not gonna judge you on your time. They're like, you know what, I, th- I think I'm ready again and, and, and they take that wedding band off, signaling to others that, not looking, but perhaps I'm available if the Lord does something. That's what she's saying here. You're not, show people you are no longer in mourning. End your official mourning. And then third, Naomi wanted Ruth to be alone with Boaz to offer herself in marriage, to do this plan. If, but if he saw her early, he'd make her go home because the threshing floor was no place for a woman who didn't have a direct relative right there. He'd make her go home. It wasn't safe. But like a tax accountant or a CPA during tax season, he's living at the office. So if you want to go see him, you got to go there because he's not coming to you. So he would sleep next to his pile of grain because that's his annual income. So he's there to protect it. So Ruth comes and Ruth uncovers his feet when he's asleep. So just like you, his feet get cold. He wakes up to cover himself back up. Then they can be alone in the middle of the night He's not distracted by the day's tasks. They won't be interrupted. Now, having explained this, I don't want to sanitize this too much. The original readers would still be like, yeah, but I mean, it's still a little weird and queasy. I mean, threshing floors are sort of like Vegas. You know what happens at the threshing floor stays at the threshing floor. You know, prostitutes would go to the threshing floors, but so would mothers and wives and sisters and daughters. So it's kind of a morally ambiguous place, we'll call it. Boaz in this situation could totally take advantage of Ruth with no repercussions. The situation could ruin Ruth's reputation. People hear about this like, I knew it. You can take the girl out of Moab, but you can't take the Moab out of the girl. You should have known better, right? But Ruth trusts Naomi. And so she takes her advice. She listens to this older woman, even when it's challenging. And that guidance is gonna take Ruth to a blessing. Now, Christians here today, we need to have real relationships like this in the church. Do, Do you have a fellow believer who can give you guidance like this? Guidance that's perhaps uncomfortable? Guidance that sometimes you may not wanna hear? And that the only reason you would follow it is if you trust them. You see, being a disciple of Jesus means that very often we have to confess our ugly to each other and be really known. And sometimes we don't know our own ugly. 
but someone else in relationship with us gets to see it a lot and they can kind of say, you know, this, this is ugly. See, and if we're in real relationships, it hurts, I'm not gonna lie about that, but it's good to like recognize that and help us, lead us into repentance and lead us to further blessing. That's what Naomi does here for Ruth. Do, do you have that kind of relationship in your life? Ruth has that relationship. Naomi seeks blessing through Boaz for Ruth. She wants Ruth blessed and settled into a home. So she gets Ruth to stop mourning and present herself to Boaz the best way, which is uncomfortable for Ruth. But as we see, as the story progresses, Ruth has her own plan because she's gonna instead try to grasp blessing for another. Look with me at verses seven through 11 now. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. She came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. So this is God's word. So Ruth submits to Naomi's guidance. She watches Boaz work and rejoice in verse seven, and there's nothing improper there. This is not he partied until he dropped. Boaz is in a payday mentality, okay? Those of you who are living where, you know, paychecks are very important, like quickly, you know what that payday mentality is. Maybe those of you who are a little higher in your career, imagine instead of getting your paycheck, how you currently get it, imagine if you got your paycheck quarterly. So you had like really financially planned. Or even this, imagine if your annual bonus was your only paycheck, how, you would, how would you treat that annual bonus, the before, during, and after, right? You'd have, be really excited, here it is, and you'd be really protecting it. Boaz is excited because like farmers, farmers get paid once a year. It's called harvest. They finally get to see, am I gonna be able to pay off this huge loan and have some money left over? That Boaz is happy, he's rejoicing. He's seeing the, his efforts after a year of labor, and he's happy. So he celebrates that God has blessed him another year. There's nothing untoward happening here. So he has this big pile of grain, his annual income. He's merry, he's feasting, and he lays down to guard the thing. And that's where our text picks up. Boy, let's look at the boys and girls um, translation in verse seven. It says, when Boaz piled up his grain, he feasted and was so happy at how much God had blessed him that year. Then he lay down to guard his grain overnight. Ruth came in secret, uncovered his feet, and lay down. See, boys and girls, I want you to think about Christmas afternoon. You got your pile of loot, I mean toys, presents, right? And, and you're so tired because you got up so early and you kind of just kind of go to sleep next to this pile of presents. That's what Boaz is doing here. He's so excited. He's got his presents for the year and he goes to sleep. And the plan goes exactly as Naomi predicted. Now, just in case you think I'm taking some creative liberties, this is actually in the text. In verse eight, that verb was startled. We could also easily translate it, he shivered. Turned over could also easily be translated twisted. Sometimes it's even used as grabbed. So, you know, instead of saying he was startled and turned over, we can say he shivered, twisted, and grabbed because his feet were uncovered. They were cold, just like you do when you got the AC cranked 
and somehow your feet come uncovered, right? See, in the middle of the, uh, here's, here's how I put it for the boys and girls. Verse 8 says this, in the middle of the night, he shivered and reached down to cover his feet, but was surprised to find a woman there. Now, I'm belaboring this because you would not believe just the salacious assumptions people make when they read this, because we bring our mentality into this instead of reading it from the text. There's, again, not going to over sanitize this. This is weird. This is creepy. It's not probably the best thing to do, but there's nothing particularly untoward happening here. So he wakes up just as we would. He calls out, who are you? And Ruth does not wait to see what she will do because she's trying to grasp a blessing for Naomi. So she tells Boaz, spread your wings over your servant. Translation, marry me, is what that means. Then she goes off script and says, for you are a redeemer. Translation, do your duty and take care of Naomi as well. See, a redeemer, we've talked about this before, a redeemer is a close family member who's responsible to make sure that the family land and the family name continues if there's been a death, such as in Naomi's family. So Naomi has the legal right to her former husband's, or dead husband's, I guess you should say, her dead husband's plot of land. She has the legal right to that. But she needs a redeemer who has the cash to buy it and then give it to her or work it for her and give her the profit. Either way, it's being a redeemer is an expensive proposition. And Ruth just jumps right in there. I know it's expensive. I know it's burdensome. You should do this. You're the redeemer. It's your job. It's your duty. You're supposed to do this. I'm going to go back to our gospel relationships in the church. We, we, we need relationships of confession and accountability, but we also need relationships of confrontation. Real community in God's grace has people with the courage to speak into each other's life on behalf of another person. Now, some of you are like, oh, I've been waiting for a pastor to say that. Okay, hold up now, okay? This is not permission to complain. This is not permission for you to boss someone around, okay? This is telling someone it is your God-given calling to do this, and you need to step up. This is not, I think you should, no, I am convinced in my heart that God is calling you to do this, and you need to do this. That's what is happening here. That's what Ruth does. That's how Ruth challenged Boaz. You are a redeemer. God has given you a duty, and you need to step up, pay the price to take care of Naomi's name and Naomi's land. And he responds in verse 10 that he's impressed. And he's impressed specifically, it's very weird in Hebrew and the English translations vary. Here's what's going on. He's impressed at first when she wouldn't leave Naomi. If you remember when he first met, he goes, I've heard about you, you wouldn't leave Naomi, you confessed faith in God. He was very impressed. Now he is impressed that for Naomi's sake, instead of pursuing someone her own age, she wants to marry him to secure him as a redeemer. He sees it like I'm some middle-aged pudgy guy and you're young and not and you're choosing me for Naomi's sake. Wow, you could have gone after some younger guy, but you're, for Naomi's sake, you're choosing me. I'm so impressed with you. And you can tell he's like, are you sure you have romantic feelings? Because he calls her daughter. Wives, you just love it when your husband calls you daughter, right? Right, that just does it for you, right? Yeah, see, this, this, like, like mood kill right there, Boaz, way to go, okay? And then he calls her a worthy woman. 
It's what Proverbs 31 says the ideal godly woman is, is, is a worthy woman. And here's what's interesting. The English Bible has a different book order, but in the Hebrew Bible, the Bible Jesus would have read, the first book right after Proverbs is Ruth. So you have Proverbs 31 laying out the ideal, and then the very next is a story about that ideal woman. Boaz gets one. Basically, an original reader would get this right here. She's a worthy, virtuous woman. Who wouldn't want to marry her? And it's interesting, when we first meet Boaz, he's called a worthy man, and here is Ruth, a worthy woman. It's like a match made in heaven. I mean, think about what God's grace has done here. Ruth is a Moabite widow. At a time in Israel's history when they didn't like them foreigners coming in, and God's grace has transformed her publicly into an ideal wife, the personification of a Proverbs 31 woman. Imagine what God's grace can do to you. So Naomi guides Ruth to the blessings of home, the blessings of husband. Ruth grasps onto a blessing for Naomi, and now we see Boaz guaranteeing to be a blessing for another. Let's finish this up, verses 12 through 18 together. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you were wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare my daughter? Then she told her all the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So Boaz accepts Ruth's request, but there's a problem. There's another redeemer, and he's first in line, apparently. The duty falls to him, which is really funny, right? Because Naomi came back from Moab, like, I'm all bitter, I'm empty, I got nothing, and now she's got too many redeemers. It's like, are you sure about that empty thing? But Boaz guarantees this will happen. Either this guy will do it or I will do it. Don't be afraid. Problems are over. And then to prove that they both are not in any kind of compromising, untoward situation, instead of hushing, leaving, and separating, they go to sleep right there together. They have no guilty conscience. There's nothing bad going on here. In the morning, Boaz wakes up. Again, in verse 14, they're clearly alone. So Boaz prays over them. Please don't let Ruth be seen for Ruth's reputation to be protected. And then he gives her basically as much grain as she can carry. Okay, so why the grain? What's going on with that? Well, a couple things. One, it's an excuse for being seen at the threshing floor so early in the morning. If you'll allow me just to say it the way it is, if she's carrying a bundle of grain, there's no walk of shame. Two, he's making a pledge to her and Naomi. He's paying part of the bride price, which was the custom, to Naomi. And it is a super gracious act because she's a foreigner and she's not actually Naomi's daughter. There's no bride price required in this transaction, but he's demonstrating his grace and he's demonstrating his kindness, extravagantly showing Naomi, here's a bride price. 
So Ruth gets home. And Naomi asks her, does it work? And Ruth tells her everything. And Naomi believes the promise of Boaz. She says, just wait. It's going to be done today. Boaz has guaranteed a blessing to them both because God often blesses his people through his people. You know, sometimes I have to work a little harder to, to make this a Christian sermon because if it doesn't get to Jesus, it's not a Christian sermon. It's just a lecture or something. I don't know. Sometimes it's harder Today it's pretty easy, isn't it? I mean, this story so dramatically points to the Lord Jesus Christ, the only avenue of blessing for these two poor widows is Boaz. God had set up this gracious system to care for his people in ancient Israel, but it was not available to them except through Boaz. And so too, God has set up a gracious system. Salvation is available to poor, wretched sinners who have nothing to offer, but it's available only through Boaz's ancestor, no, descendant, sorry, other way, descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only redeemer of God's people, and he willingly paid the price for our salvation. He took on flesh. He walked among us. He took on the suffering and the frustration of this life. And even in the midst of all that temptation, he lived the life we should have lived before a holy God. He voluntarily, out of love for his people, died the death that we sinners deserve to die to redeem us from the curse of God's law. And it cost him more than some grain to redeem us. It took his very blood but then in his resurrection, he broke the power of death and he offers to us eternal life graciously, extravagantly, if we would but repent and believe. See, and instead of all the grain we can carry in his gracious promise, what we get is we actually get him. We are actually united to him by faith, the Bible says, so that what is true of Jesus is true of us. And his resurrection then becomes the promise of our eventual resurrection. It's a beautiful picture of God's extravagant grace on others. Oh, Christians here today, see and remember the amazing love of God that through the gospel, he's made us into a new community. Each of us, grounded in God's love for us, can then love each other well. Seeking blessing for others. And seek out those kinds of relationships. And if you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or maybe you're in conversation with your non-Christian neighbors, you know, so many of us in our world today are, are concerned with ideas of justice and ideas of fairness and we're of really trying to mitigate the, the, the tribalism and the racism that's out there. And, and, and we in church world have not been particularly skillful at presenting how robustly the Bible absolutely speaks on those issues. But to all who just want society just to get along, right? Can we just get along? <laughs> For there to be peace, look at the sacrificial community in Ruth 3 that God's grace creates. People, instead of looking out for their own interests and their own tribe, bend over backwards to do stuff for others, to bring grace to others, to bring healing, to create a home for someone else because God's grace has changed them. All that sacrificial care is fueled by God's grace. If those kind of relationships attract you, if that kind of society and culture attracts you, you should want the gospel to be true. In verse 10, Boaz mentions that Ruth did not go after 
other men, perhaps more attractive men. That's actually a very commonly used religious phrase referring to Israel going after idols. What is it in your heart that you go after that you think is more attractive? Is that career? Is that relationship? Is that hobby really going to save you and really going to make you the more sacrificial person you wish you were in a culture of more sacrificial people? Because Jesus Christ can do that. He will forgive you. He will fulfill you. He will bless you. And he will change the world. He is the redeemer waiting to pay the price for those who do not deserve it. He will cover you with his wings of refuge and make you his own. So even now, repent of those things you've gone after. Repent of those things you've looked for to give you rest and fulfillment and peace and place your simple faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel. And you'll be healed. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, your grace really is amazing. And it's just amazing that a story like this that is so old and so ancient and so rural and agrarian can speak to those of us in Midlothian, Virginia today. Lord, we pray that we would be overwhelmed at the message of your grace, that we would be changed by it, that you would be true to your promise that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up, that you would draw all people to him. So would you do your work even now? And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.